Welcome back to another episode of the Tech in Shanghai podcast. I'm very excited to announce that today on the show we speak with Ray Ma, partner at 500 Startups in charge of the Greater China region, and her colleague and investment associate at 500, Norman Chung. Over the past year or so, we've spoken with a number of great entrepreneurs on the show, but there's been a notable absence of guests that fall into the investor category. With fundraising often being a crucial component of the startup process, I've been wanting to speak with an investor for a while now to get a perspective from the other side of the negotiating table. As it turns out, I literally could not have found a more appropriate guest, as in 2015, 500 Startups was the most active VC firm globally. With a portfolio of over 800 companies, who better to speak to about all things funding and fundraising? Seriously, who better? Of course, with so much going on for 500 in the Greater China region, these two are super busy. So we had to move quickly in this episode. But fear not, we still had time to cover a number of relevant issues that entrepreneurs in any region won't want to miss. And if you're still thirsting for more by the end, I think I can pressure them into coming on again sometime soon. Of particular note, we discuss areas of the tech world they are most actively looking at right now, some of the interesting regional differences in the types of entrepreneurs they have interacted with, the funding landscape, best practices regarding fundraising, and a nice discussion on how to approach the inevitable emotional challenges of startup life. I really enjoyed this discussion, and I'd like to thank Ray and Norman again for granting me the time to have it with them. So please enjoy my chat with Ray Ma and Norman Chung of 500 Startups. Welcome to the Tech in Shanghai podcast, the Pearl of the Orient. Shanghai is the city of the future. All systems go full steam ahead. It never stops. Technology, innovation, ambition—it's everywhere. Join us as we explore this new world and talk to the people making it happen. The Tech in Shanghai podcast. The future is now. Welcome back to the show, everybody. I am here today with Ray Ma and Norman Chung. Yes, am I saying that correctly? From 500 Startups.、Um, for those of you that aren't familiar with 500 Startups,、um, Ray, perhaps you could give a brief introduction to the organization, what you guys do, and we'll actually record it this time. <laughs> Great. <laughs> so,、uh, 500 Startups, we are a global seed fund and accelerator program.、Uh, we were started five and a half years ago in 2010. Uh, by early PayPal employee Dave McClure and early Google employee Christine Tsai, and since then we have invested in over fifteen hundred startup companies in over fifty different countries all over the world, and we now have、uh, over a hundred staff members located in twenty different countries. Wow! So I joined three years ago at the beginning of two thousand and thirteen, and am in charge of Greater China.、Mm-hmm. Now. We talked about a little bit about this before the show, but thus far on the show, we've had a lot of really interesting, really great entrepreneurs. But we haven't had too many people that are on the other side of that table, you know, in the investment community.、Um, and I think it goes without saying that entrepreneurs are very interested in that area、um, because it's an integral part of the process of starting up a company. For the majority of the time, finding,、uh, raising money, getting funding is is a big part of the process. Can you, for our listeners, because your purview is、uh, China, Greater China,、um, can you guys give a little insight into what's going on in the startup world in China right now? Maybe some trends that are going on. What's kind of where you guys are looking most、uh, intently right now? Sure, I can talk about that, and maybe Norman can jump in、uh, with regards,、yeah. especially to. Taipei, which、uh, he helps cover.、Mm-hmm. So, Greater China. Just to be very clear, we're referring to the pol- politically correct、uh, way of、uh, referencing both mainland China, <coughs> Hong Kong, as well as Taiwan,、mm-hmm. right? So, all of those、uh, regions. And for Greater China,、uh, I think we're still primarily focused on what we've publicly stated in the past, which is a lot of cross-border businesses. Whether those are in the areas of e-commerce,、uh, travel, which is by nature very uh, global, uh, or education, etc.,、uh, we have also been,、um, you know, increasingly more interested in investing in,、uh, I think, more cutting-edge companies such as in the IoT space, and you know, we're starting to look at a lot more ARVR. Uh, especially through some of our micro funds,、uh, I do think that out of Greater China, though,、um, we are still focused on our bread and butter of e-commerce, cloud services, 
education, uh, et cetera. Mm -hmm. We are very, very focused on getting accelerator companies out of the region. So companies to participate in our four-month-long accelerator program based in Silicon Valley mm -hmm. uh, and San Francisco. And those businesses tend to thrive the most when they are global in nature. So right. whether they are just immediately uh, available and accessible to a global audience or they focus on something of a cross-border nature. So is your job not only finding, you know, uh, target companies for the 500 portfolio, but also kind of trying to find people to invite into the accelerator programs in the U.S.? Is that kind of dual purpose, what you're, like your, your job in China? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so we do, uh, you know, many things. Um, primarily on the investment front, which is most of our energy, there is, of course, sourcing investments. But sourcing investments, our fund invests in three primary ways. Mm -hmm. One is the accelerator program, which is, as I mentioned, is a four-month program where we give a set amount of money. So that's 125000 U.S. dollars right now and take in exchange 5% uh, of the company's mm -hmm. equity. And that's a set program. We run that four times a year, twice in San Francisco, twice in Mountain View, and we alternate. Mm -hmm. uh, we have had a few companies from mainland China go, and we've had a bunch, uh, mm -hmm. I think seven, out of Taipei uh, mm -hmm. go go through the program, as well as um, two out of Hong Kong. Right, right. Um, uh, another way w in which we invest is we co-invest at the seed stage. Uh, so we generally put in somewhere between 100000 maybe up to $200,000 in a company's seed, seed round. Mm -hmm. And for those types of uh, investments, we don't dictate the price. We mm -hmm. just are co-investors. We follow uh, what the terms of the round are. And we've done a few of those investments in Greater China. Right. Now I'll give you a bit of a break because today you have a bit of a sore throat and I don't <laughs> want to wear you out too early. Norm, maybe you can tell us about Kind of as Ray was saying, kind of the the Taiwan scene and your uh, role and involvement in in Five Hundred there. Sure, um, we have a team of three uh, in Taiwan. So it's me, Cjin, and Alex. We're based in Taiwan, but we're covering or helping covering the Great China area as mm -hmm. well. Uh, for the ecosystem in uh, uh, Taiwan, it's not too anything too different from our bread and butter still. Mm -hmm. So we still focus on a lot of mobile internet um, and a couple IoT because, you know, uh, for the Great China area, you know, China or Taiwan has been known for like uh, uh, manufacturing mm -hmm. uh, for a long period of time. So uh, the team certainly have. Uh, well, most of the tech people or well, whoever business, business people are, are really familiar with that space. So uh, we actually have about about close to 10 investments in uh, Taiwan. And right now, I would say uh, two of them are IoT-related re areas. Some are marketplace. Uh, some are um, just uh, uh, internet messengers, uh, apps, these kind of uh, startups. Yeah. I'm curious to know, do you notice, you're talking about greater China, so Hong Kong, mainland, and, and Taiwan. Yep. Do you notice a difference in the type of entrepreneur you encounter in either of those markets, either of you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Tell, yeah. Me, tell, me, tell me some of the differences that you see in the, I don't know what qualities of the entrepreneurs you meet, but if there are, what are they? Well, um, so first of all, I'm probably biased because, you know, I, I love all my entrepreneurs across the region equally, right? Sure. Because this is the region I cover. It's not better or worse. <laughs> no, no, no. no. They're just different. Yeah. They're, they're just different. So I think, um, you know, I find that mainland Chinese entrepreneurs, as many people have noted, are very opportunistic, very aggressive, so very fast moving. So mm -hmm. it's very uh, similar to Silicon Valley mentality of move fast, break things. Um, if this works, let's just go hard at it and then we'll figure out why later. Right. Um, I think for Hong Kong and Taiwan, because they're inherently much smaller markets, um, that they, the, the companies themselves tend to be a little bit more timid when they do expand. Um, the capital markets are also a lot less developed in terms of you know venture mm -hmm. money. So therefore, a lot of the companies are a lot more, uh, like, I, like I was saying, uh, slower to move. They are... Um, not necessarily more uh, as aggressive about experimenting with different things and going into new regions um, or different business models, mm -hmm. et cetera. So they're much slower to use startup parlance to, to pivot. Um, also, those markets, because they're much smaller, I think 
the pace of learning is just a little bit slower. Right. So there's less mentorship. There's less other entrepreneurs they can look up to, et cetera. And that's where we hope to actually add a lot of value by bringing in sort of a global network of know-how. I think in the past, you know, we've said, yeah, we bring Silicon Valley knowledge, et cetera. But more and more, we've seen that we are learning from all corners of the globe. Mm-hmm. And so our value add now is not just bringing in what you know, the, the quote unquote Silicon Valley know how, but also we are learning plenty from our entrepreneurs in the rest of the world, such as China, India, you know, Southeast Asia, very many fast moving markets. Mm -hmm. And we're bringing it into smaller ecosystems where the entrepreneurs, um, may not be able to develop a, at least unicorn level business just by addressing the home market. So we're trying to help them develop a more global, view of where their product can go or where their service can go and not just be confined to, you know, the, the island sure, or, or yeah. whatnot. And what about you, Norman? Do you notice in interactions with entrepreneurs in these different markets, do you notice any characteristics that stand out? Again, no mm-hmm. quality judgment here, but just yep. are there any differences? I, I agree. Most, I think Ray uh, does a great job in terms of analyzing. Mm-hmm. But uh, my take is, uh, I'll start from Taiwan because that's where I'm mostly familiar with. Uh, so uh, Taiwan... Uh, is in terms of the GDP is mostly depending on export a lot. Mm-hmm. So uh, most of the entrepreneurs uh, or the ones that we look at uh, tend to need to do international globally because domestic market is not big enough. Mm-hmm. So uh, they the teams do face some problems as Ray just mentioned. But um, the good thing is that um, uh, for Taiwan, uh, something uh, doing international business is not something that they are not familiar with. They've been doing that for quite some time, but it's just uh, there's some transition in terms of I- industry. Like for example, Taiwan is not really uh, has done too much internet in the past, uh, comparing to U.S. Uh, so uh, there's some, definitely some learning curve there, mm-hmm. but hopefully it will catch up. But as opposed to uh, comparing with uh, you know uh, mainland Chinese entrepreneurs. I think, uh, just as Ray mentioned, very aggressive. And I, I think they have a lot of options. Uh, for example, they have domestic markets, a huge market. You have tier one, tier two, tier three, tier four cities. Mm-hmm. And depending how you want to penetrate. Um, so right now, a lot of startups are not just focusing on purely tier one cities. A lot of are focusing on how about I'm exploring some you know new markets like tier two tier three that you know the big players bat aren't really you know focusing on because a lot of bat are doing international right now right. so uh i think they they just uh mainly chinese entrepreneurs tend to have more options and w- once they do domestic you know they're from there they're mm-hmm. local so in some way uh in terms of learning curve it's not as steep as uh as opposed to a lot of Taiwanese entrepreneurs that they have to do global in order to scale. Yeah. Yep. Now, you, you raise a good point there, and you were mentioning that they are local, right? And this is a subject that comes up a lot on this show because we talk about the advantages and the differences in success or ability to gain traction um, between local entrepreneurs and foreign entrepreneurs that have come to China for whatever reason to set up their venture here. Um, what's... So I asked you about the difference differences within Greater China, but maybe you can speak just briefly on your experiences between local Chinese entrepreneurs, so mainland Chinese entrepreneurs, and foreigners that are that are um, open that are starting up in in China. And does five hundred have a preference one way or the other for working with with either kind? Because let's be honest, the the, the there are more obstacles to foreigners starting up in China. Uh, than their local counter- counterparts, if for no other reason that there's a language barrier right off the bat most of the time. And then there's a number of other cultural nuances and ways of operating and relationships and things like that that come into play. So does that come into play when you guys are making investment decisions? I think for us, uh, because of our you know headquarters being out of California and our initial network, especially before I joined, having been um, mostly the expat uh, network, we have invested in quite a bit of uh, expat-backed businesses out here. Mm-hmm. That being said, we are moving into more and more local investments. So I think the past couple of investments we've made are all local teams. Mm-hmm. Um, 
in terms of success rate, we're relatively new in China. I think that there is a specific, and I think I've written articles on this before or blogs on this before, where I do see that there are certain advantages, especially if it's an inherently cross-border business, where a, combina- a combination mm-hmm. of expats and locals actually make a better team than uh, a straight-up local team. So just to give an example, this is an investment that we just recently made and that uh, Norman was instrumental in securing. It is cross-border businesses where we're uh, doing e-commerce out of China into emerging markets, Mm -hmm. right? So while it's crucial that on the supply side we have a local CEO who's very well aware of how to deal with supplier relationships here. That being said, once you exit China and you're trying to sell to foreign markets, it's actually much more helpful when, um, whether or not on the management team or your investor base, you have a foreign expertise as well. And in this case, they're not trying to sell into the U.S. They're trying to sell into even more emerging markets where, you know, it's even harder to find those types of experts. Mm-hmm. So um, I think in, in this team's particular case, uh, their other co-founder has uh, experience living abroad. And that's been very, very helpful, I think, for them in trying to figure out how to penetrate new markets, right. even mm-hmm. if she didn't actually live in the, in the market they're trying to go for. Right. Mm-hmm. And do you, do you guys notice, I mean... We uh, we discussed an article before we started recording today uh, that said or that was showing how 500 uh, was the most active VC in Asia last year. Mm-hmm. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Am I getting that right? Yes. Yes. Like yeah. deal deal number. Yeah. Deal We're number. actually the most active uh, globally. globally. If you look at CB Insights, there mm-hmm. was just a uh, very short piece that just came out that we we're the most active. Well, that's awesome. Right Congratulations. Of, uh, Sequoia, yeah. <laughs> uh, so my my question was it. Angel investing and venture investing and investing in in tech startups uh, generally in China over the last three you know two three four years has really become a lot more popular. I'm sure you guys are aware of this as well. Where you'll have angel groups investing, you'll have more venture firms coming up, and then you'll have just private individuals, wealthy individuals who are, are tapped to invest in in various startups. When you guys are approaching exclusively local teams, so not the the latter that you were just talking about, um, how do they approach you guys? Like, what is their approach to you? Are they are they extra motivated to work with a fund with the name recognition that you guys have and the value adds that you bring, or are they more than happy to just go with friend of a friend's uncle who can put in the same amount of money or more and just accelerate their their trajectory? Is there any preference? that you guys have encountered when you're dealing with uh, with this these sort of situations, these sort of companies? Uh, yeah, I'll take a stab at that question. So I think that, okay, so the market's changed a lot, right? When I first started mm-hmm. um, three years ago, there was just maybe a dozen or so Which very active crazy, right? angel it's investors. It's that right? much in three years. Yeah, and now it's probably, you know, definitely into the four digits mm-hmm. uh, in terms of number of pre-A funds that exist in China. Um, I would say that uh, in the past year or two, let's say, if I had to be very concrete about it, probably uh, second half of 2014, all the way up until probably, uh, you know, Q3 of last year, mm-hmm. it, it uh, there was an abundance of capital, especially at the early stage. So therefore, I would say that um, people were probably less selective or less discriminating about what type of investors they're bringing in and mm-hmm. more focused on the valuation and dollar amount. Um, that being said, a lot of these uh, first-time entrepreneurs, I'd like to think anyway, um, have now either run out of money because the failure rate is very high mm-hmm. um, and are now uh, possibly embarking on their second sort of startups for those of them that are still in the running. And these people are a lot more, I would say, selective about the resources that their investors bring to the table because they understand that it's just not the it's not just the face value of the check that's being written, but it's also the know how that comes behind it that could really help you jumpstart, uh, um, you know, market opportunity. Right. So, kind of when it's the first time on the merry-go-round, you're just like 
whatever, wherever the money's coming from, right. I need it yeah. so I can keep going. And then if that doesn't work out, then you're a little more mature next time around. You think, well, maybe if I partnered with someone like yeah. 500 or an, a, a venture firm that has a lot of experience, brings to the table a lot of resources, yeah. then perhaps I increase my likelihood of success. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I can bring out one point as like uh, something I recently saw is that, um, you know, we started to talk to some teams that, you know, they have, uh, uh, you know, what they value 500 is not really the money, mm -hmm. but it's about our global network. Um, as you mentioned previously, we're one of the most active VCs uh, in Asia. Uh, so uh, one of the teams that we have talked to previously, uh, they're like, they're doing business mostly for, you know, for, for the whole Asian region. And that includes Southeast Asia, Japan, Korea, and then they're trying to move to uh, mostly Asia, mostly. Mm -hmm. And uh, th they are very intrigued by our investments. And then, you know, they basically they're really interested because the value add. So we are starting to get like comments like this. And then that's uh, those teams pretty much told us is like that's how you're the reason we pick you is because you're pretty much. Because you're global reach, that's how you differentiate from uh, other maybe other investors, mm -hmm. and that's why uh, they're more interested in 500, not yeah. just the brand. And a final a question on that: Last year, we saw a lot of volatility in the local Chinese stock market, right? Mm -hmm. Does that do you guys see an impact on that in terms of the the interest in perhaps? Come like approaching 500 because maybe some of those other angel sources dry up as a result of that extreme volatility in markets, or does mm -hmm. that kind is that kind of a wash and it doesn't really affect the venture mm -hmm. or angel uh, landscape? Oh, for sure. I think uh, you know. In actually, when I was here in December, uh, basically every media interview I did uh, asked us about how we thought about the um, what they called the winter in the capital markets. Mm -hmm. um, some of that is, of course, you know, due to the volatility, like you said, in the public markets. Uh, some of it is just, you know, the general slowdown in the economy and mm -hmm. the lack of available uh, cash. That's definitely helped us, I think, um, especially in China. So the valuations for a while were on par, if not higher than um, much of what you'd see in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. And now I think they have come down. I don't have, you know, a complete picture. It is an opaque market. So, um, but from what I have seen, the, the valuations have come down quite a bit. And, um, and as I was saying earlier, with more and more experienced entrepreneurs, they're starting to be more discriminating capital. So it's a confluence of factors. It's the fact that, you know, really easy money or hot money is less readily available, mm -hmm. leading to just more rational uh, pricing. Right. And it's leading to the fact that, um, you know, I also want to say that earlier, I think we didn't add that um, over the past three years that I've been here managing 500's Greater China Business, we've also slowly been building up our ability to deliver on our services, right? So while we can say, as many investors say, we're value-add value added investors, what does that really mean? And that has taken us a couple of years to figure out. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's sort of those three things. Right now we have sort of real-life case studies of existing portfolio companies that have benefited from our uh, value add mm -hmm. who can point to us and say, yes, 500, help me hire my first person in China, help me interview, went through their networks, help me find uh, investors, strategic mm -hmm. investors for a next round, help connect me with partners in the region, um, whatnot, and then added to the fact that we are uh, now one of fewer, not still very many, but fewer available sources of capital makes it hopefully easier for us to to source deals right. uh, in the future. And on that point, is it mostly, which is it, uh, startups approaching you guys and saying, here's my pitch deck, here's my business plan, can we have a meeting or whatever, or is it you guys scouring the landscape and, and trying to you know connect with those startups? Is it the former? Seems like it mm -hmm. would be. Uh, we get quite a bit of inbound. Um, we also get quite a bit of referrals. Mm -hmm. um, so we have both, in, you know, a very active mentor network as well as, I think by now, probably uh, 
over 2,500 uh, community of uh, founders that we funded who wow. keep on referring us deals. Right. So that's, that's been really great. And then, of course, we have uh, co-investors that we regularly work with. And so um, as we build up, it, it really is a we, – we see investing as re- really like a long-term game, right? So we really need to build up our reputation, and this reputation is not – you know, superficial. This reputation is based on the fact that we really have helped our portfolio companies mm-hmm. um, reach a different level of success that they otherwise would not have been able to on their own, and uh, we sort of thrive on this um, on this uh, virtuous cycle of more and more referrals. Mm-hmm. Um, so while I would say we get a fair amount of inbounds, most of the inbounds are qualified inbounds. So there are referrals from people we've already invested in, invested mm-hmm. with, you know, partnered with in some way or right. just otherwise trusted sources. And I want to ask a question now for, <clears throat> excuse me, the entrepreneurs out there. So I'm not going to ask how best should startups or founders or startup team members approach you guys because you can find that stuff out elsewhere. Mm-hmm. But what I want to ask is I think a lot of uh, startup founders – they're so focused on building whatever it is they're building, managing all the different duties of their team and all that kind of stuff, that fundraising can seem like a very daunting task to many of them. They don't know how much time they should allot to it. They don't know how much they should spend on it, legal and all that kind of stuff. Can you just share with the audience kind of where on the spectrum of sophistication most of the the startups that you work with, most of the founders that you have that initial meeting with where they are on kind of the know-what-to-do spectrum for fundraising. Because basically, and I'm asking this question because I think that a lot of startup founders, like I said, are, are kind of overwhelmed or over, overcome with um, not knowing how to approach this. They know they have to get funding, and they know they have to connect with people like yourselves to do so, and that it can end up in a deal whereby you own a certain amount for a certain investment. But all the other stuff in between they don't really know exactly how that's going to unfold. Do people that you have initial meet- meetings with and that approach you, you know, where, where do they land on that spectrum? And let's say for the sake of this, this example, first-time founders, so not people that have been through it before and they kind of know how everything is. Like when someone's coming to you to get funding, do they know even how the process will unfold or they, they just know they need to speak to you and they'll take it from there? Uh, I would say the well-prepared founders... Well, first of all, I want to say that fundraising should be a full-time job mm-hmm. for someone in the organization, ideally the CEO, um, because it is a important competitive advantage, the availability of capital to right. run your business. Um, and, and spending a lot of time on fundraising right now for our fund, uh, I'm sort of in a similar position, and I can tell you it is most definitely a full-time job. <laughs> um, I think that for... Um, Many of the first-time founders uh, we meet with, there is a relatively high um, signal-to-noise ratio or noise-to-signal ratio. Mm-hmm. Um, so the preparation sometimes is lacking, and it's unfortunate because now, in comparison to three or four years ago, there are a ton of resources on the Internet um, that really can help you with you know, defining whether or not it be the mechanics of actually executing the deal mm-hmm. or just how do you go about presenting the deal in the best light, right? And this is just salesmanship. I think that uh, it's storytelling about your your company and mm-hmm. your product and the problem you're trying to solve. And most people think that this is just for investors. It really isn't. It's actually going to be a very similar pitch you give to recruiting your most coveted employees, advisors, Right, probably many of your customers. So this should be a this should be a pitch you have down, like really pat. Of course, you know there are nuances that you need to do um, when you face investors, i.e., when you talk about your competition or how you're actually going to spend the money or a rationale for, you know, spending the money you're trying to raise or maybe some details about running your business. Right, but just the basic act. I find it unfortunate that many entrepreneurs don't really have just the basic articulation of problem, you know, market solution. They mm-hmm. don't have that down, and that's. Uh, and what do you think trips them up there? You know, because I watched a funny video right before I came here today. I watched a video on YouTube 
and I think it was from this past December, and it was Dave mm-hmm. uh, McClure um, giving a presentation on pitching or something to a group of 18 to 26 year olds who wanted to start a business or were in the process of doing so mm-hmm. and i had i had never seen anything from dave before other than selfies on twitter right <laughs> i'd never seen any videos or anything like that and basically i'm not going to act it out but it was stand up no sit down stand up no 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 that's <laughs> that's crap or that's i don't believe that or i don't like that or mm-hmm. and it was just up and down and up and down <laughs> what what is it that uh you think Startup founders, and I know that's a broad category. You know, there's many different variations in that category. What is it? You mentioned the importance of being able to articulate clearly what it is you're doing and why. What is it that gets them hooked up or hung up and not be able to do that? Maybe Norman, you can jump in on this one first. Yeah, I think uh, I think the question is what you know will really make us understand that uh, whether. You know, you know your stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think, uh, I mean, just talking about my experience is um, basically just a, it's a salesmanship, right? Um, you have to know what and where you are and what the market is and what's the potential that it's going to be. Mm-hmm. And you really have to quantify that. And so you actually make us understand as you go along with your pitch and these numbers, you actually help us understand that you really understand this market. It's not you should. It's not you learning from us in terms of the market. Is we should be learning from you, right? And so I, I think that's a very critical point in terms of um, how you deliver your pitch. So really make us understand or make us really understand in terms of number why this is such an opportunity that we should not miss. Right. And can either of you give me an example of a pitch you heard, an elevator pitch, or someone a founder you came in contact with? When you asked them that question, they gave it to you, and you were just like, "Wow, okay, um, let's have a let's have a chat. Let's open up this dialogue." Can you either of you give me an idea of of, of how that went down, like what they said <laughs> or how they approached it? Oh, um, does anything stick out? If not, we we can we can go on. But if I just want to know if there's anyone that stuck sticks out in your mind, like oh, that was that was really sharp, and that opened up a dialogue. Maybe it led to an investment or not, but it got my attention. I would say actually um, that that has rarely happened to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe just because I think it's really hard to encapsulate it in one sentence, and a lot of pitches start sounding alike. And I'm a little skeptical when people use the you know Change I am X for or yeah I am <sighs> X for Y, you know I'm Uber for I don't know like mm-hmm. strollers or something. Uh-huh. Um, uh, so that doesn't necessarily capture my attention, but I think when people are able to articulate, um, like as Norman was saying, their problem in a really intelligent and thoughtful way that I haven't really thought about, mm-hmm. that just shows a lot more depth than um, than uh, like some a casual observer would otherwise be able to understand. Right. Uh, I would like to think that all of the investments we have made, the founders have shown that. Uh, shown that while they were talking about their business. So, um, and a lot of times it's not necessarily the first iteration of their product. There have been, I I do want to say here that there have been uh, quite a few companies, I think that um, me or other team members have interacted with that we did not invest upon the first interaction. And we ended up investing maybe one, two, three years later. Mm -hmm. Um, There's actually an entrepreneur in Shanghai um, that I passed on for, I want to say, I don't want to say his name, but, uh, a, a couple of times for, uh, various reasons, but I know, I knew very well what they were trying to get to. Mm-hmm. And I knew there was a point at which it would make sense to make an investment. And eventually, uh, they did a get, get an investment from, um, one of our funds, And uh, it was because they had, you know, really shown that they understood what they were doing. They changed their business model a a bit from when we first started talking. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not necessary that you have to know exactly what you're trying to do the first time, but you have to also at least demonstrate uh, learning and depth of understanding more than, you know, the casual observer, the person who's jumping into it for the first time because, you know, we don't want to be paying the tuition for you to be figuring it out. We hope that you have it somewhat figured out yeah and that makes me think of another uh i think question or common phenomenon and obviously the startup world the startup phenomenon is only getting bigger throughout the world you know people are 
not wanting to do the nine to five office job and they want to be engaged in something that they're more passionate about or that they that stimulates them more or they can have to use the cliche uh, an impact at some on some area on people's lives or in the in the greater world but obviously many that that jump into this field or pool don't can't can't figure out how to swim you know and they end up either trying again or going back to what they were doing before I want to ask you guys from an investor's point of view, and this is kind of related to the last question where we were talking about what can uh, a startup founder or a startup company say to you that will make you think, you know, okay, let's open a dialogue. And you said it hasn't been too many where it's been so cut and dry. But throughout your experience, and I'm sure many of the companies you've passed on and even probably some that you've invested in have, have not worked out, what would you say are maybe one, you know, two or three of the top attributes uh, that you've noticed with such a large data set now that are indicative um, of the potential for success? And, I, and by that, I mean like personality traits of founders. Like, is it perseverance? Is it intelligence? Is it whatever? Can, have you noticed any that, that jump out at either of you? Um, I, I think I can start. Uh, sure. So um, just this answer is pretty much sort of touch base on along with the first question a little bit uh, because we, we met a lot of people uh, some business model are B2B some business model are B2C mm-hmm. you know, some are B2B2C so uh, we met a lot of different founders and sometimes yes uh, as Ray mentioned you know just by a couple sentences we couldn't really tell you know we, we, we want to be fair but uh, because we met a lot of people and actually talked to them so for example, there are some people are just, for for example, some CEO just really good at, it seems like pretty good at sales in terms of B2B. It's just the personality, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the impression and the behavior, the way they talk things. So for me, that was sort of get me intrigued in terms of talking to him more. If, for example, he's doing B2B business and then, you know, he, he sort of gave me a pretty good impression in terms of how B2B sales look like. Mm-hmm. And I will talk more. Right. And then to understand more. But it doesn't mean that it will definitely move. Of course, yeah. Yeah, but it will just, I will be intrigued. Right. Yeah. Right? For me, it's like understanding the entrepreneur's uh, thought process and, of course, their perseverance along with it. But I do think that in some cases I've seen uh, perseverance um, run its course for the worse when, you know, entrepreneurs insist on going down a road a that is. Yes, exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I I do think that um, for me, um, I can think of a couple of companies where um, the uh, the iteration of the product when we invested was definitely, like I said before, it was not the first iteration, but there was a very clear and logical path to why they started somewhere, why they made certain changes because of the market knowledge that they had learned. Um, because of talking to their customers, because of behaviors they had observed. And there were sort of very quantitative, not like, I feel this is correct, but hey, here's data to back up why we think this is the you know, better opportunity. This is why we would want uh, investment to go forward with, with this idea. Mm-hmm. And to me, that is a combination of, um, I don't know if, whether you would call it good listening skills, um, because a lot of it is just reading and understanding uh, and being able to make decisions based on data. Mm-hmm. Uh, but some of it is very sort of softer. Um, or, you know, I, I could also term it coachability. Um, a lot of people, especially, you know, entrepreneurs, don't realize how lucky they are being based in, you know, any of the cities that we cover here in this region. There are so many uh, resources available versus, you know, somewhere in, let's say, Pakistan or right. something mm-hmm. uh, that's, and, and, you know, having, uh, living in the age we do now where there's so many free resources online, um, the ability to take that, those resources, whether it be, you know, free or resources you get from the 500 network and then turning that into something actionable is not, is not always, um, I guess, inherent in everyone, mm-hmm. right? You could, you know, not everyone's going to take advantage to the same extent. Is exactly, that, they yeah. they definitely um, don't. So I think that ability to learn and being able to exploit 
the advantages you're given is not it is something I'm is something I definitely look for, and it's mm-hmm. not something that is uh, apparent in every team. Yeah, and I f- through doing this show, I've come across a lot of those different personalities, and I think it's the rare founder who has the stubbornness and kind of like w- single mindedness to push forward on the work that they need to get done, and to persevere, and to commit, and to make all those tough decisions on a day to day basis. But that at the same time remains at the same time remains humble and open enough to receive that coaching and to listen to others. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it, it seems like a difficult balance to strike mm-hmm. because one is so far kind of in that direction and the other one is kind of opposite to it in certain ways. Mm-hmm. And the, and and the founder that can bring those two things together mm-hmm. and and use them both to their advantage seems like a really strong asset, personality trait in among founders. Yeah, I would say one. I'm not. This might not be absolute, but I I do tend to find that entrepreneurs who focus on the problem rather than the solution right. they've created tend to be a little bit more, you know, along the lines of what we're saying, being able to see resources and use them and right. being more coachable, et cetera, because they're not they're trying to solve a problem and they're gonna, you know, attack it from any angle that Whatever they can. Whatever angle works, exactly. Yeah. Versus um, this is so my idea. I want to exactly. I want to put this in the world. They're in love with the solution. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. very different. It's it's not always you know immediately obvious which mm-hmm. type the person is, but uh, I would say that's probably one big differentiator. Right. Now, I know you guys are, are very tight on time. You have a busy schedule while you're in Shanghai. I very much appreciate the time. A few more questions, and then I'll let you go. You guys okay with that? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Um, so one of the things that, that I wanted to touch on briefly, and because we're tight on time, we'll have to keep it short, but you mentioned decision-making a second ago as, as kind of one of the uh, responsibilities, of course, that founders have to uh, deal with on a day-to-day basis. And it's really easy to say, yeah, good decision-making skills, the ability to make balanced decisions, you know, using all the data available, blah, blah, blah. But practically on a day-to-day basis where y- you actually have to make make-or-break decisions, how do I allocate my time, how do I allocate my resources, all that kind of stuff is very emotionally draining. And that's something I've no- noticed speaking with a lot of startup founders. And, and I'm, I'm happy to see that this issue is actually getting a little more press over the last couple of years. The emotional dynamics that are at play inside startups and with startup founders and early employees and things like that. Um, and I'm not sure what my question is here, but <laughs> based on the interactions, the so, so many interactions that you have with startup founders, there's so many, there's a lot of high hopes when founders are coming from let's say regular world of work into startup industry and they're hoping to do interesting work and be with a cool team and hopefully make make money and all this kind of stuff but there's you know it's a very tumultuous emotional road and there's a lot of ups and downs is there any advice that either of you can give to the potential uh startup founders out there or anybody really in in all of our day-to-day lives with our work that you have noticed that maybe others have done or you have done in your own lives that help you kind of even out those ups and downs and allow you to remain focused without getting too emotionally uh, drawn in, in in either direction? Big question, I know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I would say um, I can identify, even though I've never you know, started my own business, I can definitely identify with many entrepreneurs because I do feel that I am working for a startup we are effectively a startup, right. uh, always, um, you know, moving fast, break things and hanging on by a thread. So um, it is very stressful. I see that many of my founders are very stressed out. Uh, quite a few have come to me, you know, had, you know, various degrees of, yeah, yeah various <laughs> degrees of uh, personal breakdowns. Yeah. So um, I would say that at the end of the day, like, we as investors, you know, of course, we're betting our money and our personal reputations and whatnot, but this is uh, your life. So please keep things in perspective, right? Um, definitely nothing is worth, uh, you know, doing going to any extremes over. And so keep your health under control. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we just want to know that you tried your best and that you made the best decision available, uh, the best decision at the time with all the data available, right? right? So keeping clear lines of communications is actually a lot more helpful for us. I think it stresses out 
it stresses us a lot a lot less um, when we know what's going on, even if a company is dying, mm-hmm. but that we we know it's dying, we can see it coming, we can write it down, and you know we can be at peace with it versus uh, not hearing anything. A, a lifeline, if, if possible, possible, right? possible. Yeah. But you know, versus uh, not hearing anything for a really long time, and then hearing that you know the the entrepreneur has been you know in despair and you know has uh worked themselves into a nervous wreck and you right. know now needs to take like a year off because they're in very poor health and trust me this has happened yeah. um so we don't want to see that and that shouldn't happen so uh versus basically people it's like any time when you have a tough situation um we're investors yes our interests are in seeing the company um to get it to fulfill its full monetary uh, potential. But at the same time, we're on your side. Uh, mm. the, the whole idea is that our interests are supposed to be aligned. So we're supposed to be resources for you to reach out to for help. Yeah. So when you have trouble in your business, uh, please reach out to us for help versus keeping it and you know trying to shoulder all the burden yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, lo- I love that attitude. And I love how this dialogue is beginning to become more mainstream so that that conversation can happen more easily and people don't have to bear the burden entirely internally, even from the, their closest team members or family members or you know relationships they have in their lives, that this can just come out in the air more, uh, more openly. doesn't mean it's necessarily going to be any easier to deal with whatever those ups and downs are. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, sometimes you can't change things. But knowing that you have supportive investors, supportive teammates, supportive relationships in your life that you can just share that stuff with you're not a freak you're not retarded you're not anything terribly bad yeah. if, if, if this mm-hmm. happens you're just going through what so many others have gone through before you and i think it's great that uh, mm-hmm. you guys take that approach norman yeah. anything to add to that one uh yeah i think um because uh, you're working as a team uh and uh to answer this question there's really not a, a correct answer mm-hmm. because but uh, but i think once once you're an entrepreneur, you will face a lot, a lot of problems, different kind of problems. But I think knowing yourself is the best. It's actually a chance for to explore more about yourself. Right. So you know what is what's your strength, what's your weakness, and then just do something about it. Mm-hmm. Or if you're extremely weak at something, then have someone to support you on that. Right. So I think it's a. It's a. I think it's a great opportunity to know yourself and sort of counter that. Yeah. In order to make yourself, you know, even stronger. Uh, but still, you know, reach out to us. You know, it's fine. Yeah. It's yeah. like an accelerated yeah. personal development experience, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Where it's very much so accelerated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like. Sorry. Go ahead. And I just want to add that we definitely have funded uh, founders who failed before, so mm-hmm. we funded them again. It really sort of depends on why you failed and if you know why you failed. Yeah. But yes, we've done that. We've also hired some of them um, back as staff. So, uh, you know, whether as permanent staff or sort of temporary uh, staff. So yeah. definitely we are very, very open about you're, our You're, you're not opinion. damaged goods if, if no, you no, 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 give no. it a stab yeah. and, and fail. And I, I find a useful metaphor that I've used in my own life, actually, for a, a manageable perspective on these sort of things. And it may be silly. I'll probably get smiles from you both. But you imagine how a sword is is made, right? You have this Mm -hmm. lump of of steel or whatever. And then it's put through the fire. And then it's it's taken out of the fire and hammered with an iron hammer relentlessly over and over and over and over again. And then it's dipped in, you know, extremely cold water. And that process happens over and over again. So it's beat down. It's burned. It's everything. But at the end of the day, it's a sword and it's fit for purpose. Isn't that a nice metaphor? <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> Impressed. That's so, going to be good. <laughs> I will let you guys go, but I won't let you guys go before I get one more question from each of you. I ask everyone who comes on the show. I actually usually ask three, but I know you guys are tight on time. Mm-hmm. One piece of advice that people can do in their daily lives, doesn't have to be tech-related, though it can be, to perform better. Kick more ass. Just be a better person. Better human on Earth. I'll start. Norman, I'll go start. ahead. Oh. I think uh, I stumped you. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I think uh, just be curious. Uh-huh. Be curious about a lot of things. Uh, open yourself because uh, a lot of ideas or, you know, startup ideas uh, are problems. And if you're not being curious enough, then you don't see the problems. Mm-hmm. And that's then you don't know where where is the pain point, yeah. right? So it doesn't mean that you have to do startup, but, it, you know, just be curious. It's like... Um, you know, self-progressions, you know, and, but I, that's my 
advice. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Okay. Um, can I say two things? Um, the sure. things I tell my uh, younger sibling a lot, which is number one, be fearless, right? There's really, I mean, for most of us, we live in the developed world. There isn't, uh, you can't go too much lower than having to go back to maybe to live with your parents or something. But right. uh, there, you know, we're not usually at risk for, uh, you know, being out in the streets or anything. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is um, one thing that I've um, held on to ever since a mentor of mine told me, uh, and that is sometimes the key to happiness is to find people who challenge you, right? So we can all surround ourselves with people who are like us and who are similar to us and who also like us. Mm -hmm. But um, one of the key ways in which we grow and learn, develop as people is when we find people who disagree with us, who challenge us to be better than we already are. And of course, sometimes that's hopefully innate that you can do that yourself, but it's also really helpful when you're, when you try to surround yourself very deliberately with people who challenge you to be better. Yeah. I think that's really great advice and really easy to listen to and nod your head. But when you're actually in that situation and you have people challenging you and you have stress and life and work whirling all around you it's a bit of a different ball game but i think it's great (laughs) advice and that's part of the piece you mentioned where it's kind of this accelerated personal development being involved in Mm -hmm. in a startup the fast moving high stress sort of thing where you learn those lessons but you have to be open to learning them quickly and you have to constantly be open to learning them because there's so many around every corner I know you have to go, Norman. You can blame your uh, your lateness on me. <laughs> I do apologize. Is there anywhere uh, you guys want to direct listeners to to get in touch with either either of you or 500 or submit any um, applications for the program or anything like that? Did you want to share Twitter? I think huh. you can. You guys can just go to our uh, websites. Yeah. And then you know we have our link information. We have our I think email information as well. I think we're pretty. It's all easy there. to yeah, access. Yeah, really easy to find us. Um, we are recruiting for our uh, uh, Mountain View Accelerator, so Batch 17, mm-hmm. uh, which starts in a couple months. Applications are already open. If you are interested, please go to angel.co slash 500 startups. Boom. Thank you guys very much for Thank the time you. today. I really appreciate it. Maybe we'll get you on uh, in a year's time when you're swinging back through Shanghai again. Thank you very so much. So thank you guys for coming, and thank you, everybody, for listening. We will see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Tech in Shanghai podcast. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Tech in Shanghai for everything tech from Shanghai and China. See you next time.